Well, we continue on this morning in our sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel, my sermon this morning entitled The Sons of Eli. Now, whether in fact or in fiction, the idea of evil siblings or bad brothers is not uncommon. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Roman mythology, Romulus and Remus were nefarious brothers who were fathered by Mars, the Roman god of war. Romulus and Remus were known for their violent and power-hungry nature. According to the myth, Romulus killed his brother Remus in a fit of rage after a dispute over the founding of Rome. And one of the notable deeds of the brother killer was leading the abduction and raping of women from a rival tribe. These were not good people. In a real-world example, notorious brothers referred to simply as the Cray twins were gangsters in the 1960s in London, England. And they were known for their violence and ruthless nature. They were responsible for numerous crimes, including murder, extortion, and fraud. The brothers were feared and respected in the criminal underworld, but their actions ultimately led to their downfall. Both sets of brothers, fictional and factual, are remembered for their evil deeds and the harm they caused those around them. Now, it's, it's worth noting in both cases, in the case of Romulus and Remus and in the case of the Cray twins, their upbringing and their parental influence definitely played a role in their bad behavior. Roman myths indicate that Romulus and Remus were abandoned at birth and were raised by a wolf which may have contributed to their violent and aggressive nature. The Cray twins in real life, on the other hand, were raised in poverty and had a very difficult relationship with their mother who, along with their father, was absent. And that unstable upbringing almost certainly contributed to their criminal behavior and more specifically to their lack of empathy towards others. While it's important to hold individuals to account individuals to responsibilities for their own actions, it is also important to recognize the role that family dynamics and an upbringing that a child receives can play in shaping behavior. Now, we have sayings that warn against the negative influence of families on each other, certainly of people on each other, but including families on each other. One such proverb is, Bad company corrupts good character. Hopefully that's not about your family. It suggests that spending time with people who have bad morals or who behave badly can lead to negative outcomes for those who are with them. Another is the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, which implies that children often inherit the behaviors and the characteristics, good or bad, of their parents. Additionally, there is a saying that A fish rots from the head down, which means that problems within a group, within an organization, within a family, often start with the leaders, with those who are in positions of authority. All of these proverbs suggest that family and social dynamics can have a powerful influence on individuals and that it's important to be aware of this influence in order to avoid negative outcomes. 
Now, negative outcomes are in view in our passage in 1 Samuel. Negative outcomes connected to familial influence. That is the case of the family of Eli. And the opposite is true, not negative, but positive outcomes in the case of the family of Elkanah. Our passage today contrasts the unfaithful family of Eli with the faithful family of Elkanah. It contrasts the unfaithful sons, Hophni and Phinehas, with the faithful son, Samuel. The main idea of this passage I suggest to you this morning could be put this way. God honors faithfulness and despises unfaithfulness. Therefore, we ought to endeavor to be faithful. Now, the destiny and the legacy of these two families is summed up by the words of the Lord. Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Or as the Christian Standard Bible puts it, those who despise me will be disgraced. Now the passage, of course, begins talking about Samuel and his faithfulness. But let's begin our examination by considering what unfaithfulness looks like. What does unfaithfulness look like? Verses 12 through 17 and 22 through 25. The unfaithfulness of the family of Eli is seen in their rejecting to love God and their rejecting to love their neighbor. Verses 12 through 17 describe the first examples of Hophni and Phinehas' unfaithfulness. The brothers' unfaithfulness primarily pertains to their wicked behavior as they perform the duties of priests. The author indicates that they were worthless men. Literally, they were sons of Belial, which means sons of wickedness. And their wickedness is summed up in that they did not know the Lord, we're told. Specifically, however, they brazenly disobeyed God's commands in regards to how sacrifices were to be dealt with. Their removal of sacrificial meat using this system of thrusting a fork into a pot was not the procedure that God had outlined. You can read about the procedure in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 13 through 15. In there, the Lord lays out the specific pieces from the sacrifice for which the priest can feed or use for his family. Very specifically, God prescribes what belongs to the priest. But what Hophni and Phinehas are doing is they're inventing a practice according to their own plan, using this fork to stab meat in a boiling pot and claiming that that's what belongs to them. Not only did this show disregard for God's command, but it was also stealing from their neighbors. You see, the the family or the person bringing the sacrifice, they also received a portion from that sacrifice. It was to go to them. But Hophni and Phinehas, with their practice of stabbing with a fork, would be stealing some of the sacrifice that was intended for their neighbors. Not only did they steal from their neighbors, we also read here that they stole from God's portion. You see, the fat portion, since the time of Abel, 
was considered the best portion of the sacrifice. And because it was the best, it belonged to the Lord. We read in Genesis 4.4, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. And then we read many years later in Leviticus chapter 3, verse 16, And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. All fat is the Lord's. But these evil brothers would demand the fat portions for themselves. They would even demand it under threat of violence against those who were coming to worship the Lord. Now, according to Leviticus chapter 7 and according to Leviticus chapter 22, taking God's portion was a capital offense. And thus, the death, punishment, the death penalty was prescribed for punishment. The author of 1 Samuel unequivocally denounces this behavior, writing, Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. These brothers are unfaithful Israelites. They're unfaithful sons and they're unfaithful priests. And we've only begun to hear about their sins. It continues in verses 22 through 25. The sons of Eli are also guilty of sexual sins. Their father had heard reports, reports of Hophni and Phinehas and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now who these uh, women were or what they were doing is unclear. There, there are no female priestesses in the Mosaic cult, but perhaps these were women who had made Nazarite vows and were serving at the temple or perhaps they were there for some unsolicited practice that involved women. The text isn't clear, but what the text is clear about is that the sins of the sons of Eli were incredibly unfaithful. Having already sinned against what's called the first table of the law, which describes how God's people ought to interact with God, after already sinning against that, they're now sinning against the second table of the law, which describes how God's people interact with each other. And so even their father emphasizes their unfaithfulness. And he paints an image of a legal dispute between his boys and, and God, which will unmistakably result in their condemnation and God's justice being poured out in punishment against them. The author of 1 Samuel is pretty clear about God's perspective on Hophni and Phinehas. It was the will of the Lord to put them to death. These bad brothers, these unfaithful sons of Eli, had robbed God, and they'd robbed their fellow covenant members, and they'd brazenly sinned sexually with other servants of God, and they insulted God by showing contempt through their actions. They are the very picture of unfaithfulness. However, the Unfaithfulness isn't limited to the sons of Eli. It is implied here that Eli himself is complicit. 
We will see later that God held Eli responsible largely for what was going on. But the fact that we read in this passage or this part of this passage is that Eli is now very old. And this is the first recorded rebuke of his sons. And that implies that Eli has been derelict in his duty. Derelict in his duty as a father and derelict in his duty as a priest of the Lord. And so we see this unfaithful family. The unfaithfulness of the house of Eli is contrasted with the faithfulness of the house of Elkanah. So what does faithfulness look like? Verse 11, 18 through 21 and 26. The faithfulness of the family of Elkanah is seen in their love of God and in their love of neighbor. Now taking last week's passage and this week's passage, we see that the the clan of Elkanah is exemplary in their piety and their faithfulness. And this is in bold antithesis to the disgusting sacrilege we see in Eli's clan. The author starts by emphasizing the faithfulness of Samuel. He repeats this idea of Samuel ministering. The boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod. Now the grammar of the words translated was ministering conveys the idea that this was a habit of Samuel's. This was his ongoing activity. This had been ingrained as part of his lifestyle. He was always continually ministering before the Lord. Now, a couple of weeks ago, if you were here in second service, you'll remember that during catechism, I asked the kids a question. The question I asked them is, what is Jesus doing right now? And I've got, I got one of the best answers I've got in asking the kids questions up here. Young boys, when I said, what is Jesus doing right now? He said, Jesus is doing what he's doing. He's exactly right. Well, what the author of Samuel wants to convey here is that Samuel is doing what he is doing, ministering before the Lord. That's who Samuel is. That's what Samuel did, ministered dutifully before the Lord. And so that contrast is being played out in these verses. And then we read in verse 21 that the boy Samuel grew in the presence of of the Lord. And what that literally says is that Samuel grew with Yahweh. Samuel grew with Yahweh. Now we sang a song this morning based on Psalm 130. And Psalm 130 describes what it is to be with Yahweh. We see in verse 7, the psalmist writes, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. You see, Samuel's faithfulness to God, his fealty to God, promises great blessing, steadfast love, redemption. And it can already be seen in his early years. It's already working its way out in his life. The faithfulness of Samuel is seen further in verse 26. 
Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Now there are a couple interesting things to note about this verse. First of all, these words follow immediately after the forecast of the death of Eli's sons. It was the Lord's will to put them to death, we read. But Samuel is growing both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. It seems that while Hophni and Phinehas' sins are increasing and their standing before God is becoming increasingly untenable, Samuel is increasing in stature and increasing in good standing before the Lord and his people. It's quite the contrast between Samuel and Phinehas and Hophni. But there's another interesting thing about verse 26. It's interesting in how similar it is to another verse that occurs in the New Testament. Let me read you from Samuel. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. Now let me read for you Luke 2, 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Clearly, Luke wants the readers of his gospel to make a connection, to make a connection between Jesus and Samuel. One commentator, Paul Evans, helps explain why. He writes this. Why does Luke make this connection with Samuel? The early church father, Cyprian, considered Samuel to be a type of Christ. Considering the significance of Samuel in these opening narratives provides us with an understanding as to this connection. As we have seen, the birth of Samuel hailed the era of the kings, the anointed ones in Israel. Similarly, the birth of Jesus begins a new era of the anointed one as the true king of Israel. Furthermore, as we have seen, Samuel's birth foreshadows the fall of Eli's dynasty and Shiloh's role as Israel's religious epicenter. Similarly, Jesus' ministry heralded the end of the official priesthood in Jerusalem. As Samuel denounced Israel's religious leaders, so Jesus denounced the leadership of his day for their corruption. Just as Samuel will prophesy the end of the priestly dynasty, so Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple itself. Just as Samuel replaces Eli, so Jesus replaces the temple and the entire temple system with himself. Just as the fall of Shiloh prepared the way for a new sanctuary in Jerusalem, so the fall of the temple from Jesus' day signals the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new. So the gospel of Luke's verbal allusion to the story of Samuel's birth is appropriate. Samuel was a transitional and a unique figure. He served as a prophet priest and until the king was anointed as the temporal ruler of Israel. Jesus, similarly but more comprehensively, fulfills all three roles as prophet, priest, and king. Now, as we talk about faithfulness, as we talk about the faithfulness of the kingmaker Samuel, and as brilliantly as his faithfulness shines, it is eclipsed entirely by the faithfulness of the king Jesus. You see, Samuel 
ushers in a salvation, a salvation through the kings of Israel who he would anoint and call to their kingship. But that salvation would fall well short of the salvation that Jesus Christ ushers in because Jesus is the true and better David, a man who is not only after God's own heart, but a man with God's own heart. And a man who gives his people a new heart for themselves that they too might be faithful to God. And we'll see that Jesus is a true and better Solomon. You see, Solomon amazed the nearby nations with his wisdom and his knowledge and his riches. But Jesus amazes the universe because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge according to Colossians. As the true and better king, Jesus brings salvation to his people, a glorious salvation. And his people are designated as such because they have surrendered their lives. They have bowed the knee, as it were, to the reign of King Jesus. We do this by repenting of our sins. We do this by trusting in Jesus and trusting in his work on the cross. If you're here this morning and you've never acknowledged the reign of Christ, you've never bowed your knee and surrendered yourself to him as sovereign ruler, I encourage you to do so by faith this morning. Just like Phineas and Hophni, And their unfaithfulness wasn't limited to themselves. Samuel's faithfulness isn't limited just to him. He shows himself to be faithful, but but so do Hannah and Elkanah. They demonstrate the same qualities we saw last week. Elkanah continues to faithfully lead his family on pilgrimages to worship at the sanctuary in Shiloh. And Hannah, Hannah loves Samuel. And she does so faithfully, even if it's from afar. She shows her child her love in tangible ways. Hannah, we're told, would make Samuel a new robe each year and take it with her as they went on their pilgrimage to Shiloh. Seems like an insignificant thing, a mother making a robe. Well, this morning in an article at Desiring God, clearly put there for Mother's Day, I read the author's take on the faithfulness of mothers, and it's appropriate for my sermon today. This is what the author wrote. A mother's profound influence on her children then comes not in spite of her seemingly small work in small places, but precisely because of it. Each jacket zipped with cheerfulness, each cracker or cheerio served with love, each promise of God whispered over little beds adds another brick upon the wall of wisdom's house and gives children another reason to follow in her steps. I'll speak to mothers more in a few minutes, but be encouraged, mothers, in regards to the faithfulness of those seemingly small acts of love that you do towards your children because it builds for them a foundation on which they can live their lives. We see this in the family of Elkanah. Their faithfulness as a family 
is such that even Eli recognizes it, and he blesses the couple. And then God affirms the blessing with kindness to the family. Eli asked God to give them more children, and we read, Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Isn't this a stark contrast to the unfaithfulness that we see in the house of Eli? The house of Elkanah teems with faith teams with faithfulness and the faithfulness of mother and father and child results in the blessing of God. But that's not what happens to the family of Eli. Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and their unfaithfulness receives rather the judgment of God. How does God respond to unfaithfulness? The unfaithfulness of the house of Eli results in God's judgment against them. The prophet, and I say prophet because man of God is a term that's used over 70 times in the Old Testament to refer to a prophet. The prophet begins by rehearsing the way that God has been gracious to Eli and to Eli's family. First, we're told that God revealed himself to Eli's ancestors. Second, the Lord chose Eli's ancestors to be priests which included them performing priestly duties like attending the altar and burning incense and any other duties that pertain to wearing the priestly garment. And third, God gave Eli, gave Eli's ancestors and Eli's families, gave them a portion of the sacrifices, thereby providing for the priest and providing for the priest's family. God was gracious to Eli. God was gracious to Eli's family, gracious to his tribe. And because of this graciousness, this unmerited favor, a question rises, as it were, in the mind of God. If I have been gracious to you, Eli, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people, Israel. Now, the plural pronouns of this question clearly implicate Eli. Now, first, he is ultimately responsible for the conduct of the priests in the sanctuary. And thus, he's at least partially to blame for the sins committed by his sons when they were performing their priestly duties. He had to own some of that. But further than that, it's very clear that Eli himself was benefiting from the practice of his sons stealing sacrifice portions of meat and fat. Clearly, why do you scorn my sacrifices by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of my people, Israel? Now, we'll see later in chapter 4 that Eli had indeed been fattened. And it's perfectly reasonable to assume that though he was prepared to rebuke his sons for sexual immorality, he turned a blind eye to their unlawful practice of taking the Lord's portion of sacrifices. And in doing so, he, he broke the first commandment. He honored his sons above Yahweh. And so the man of God pronounces 
the judgment of God. God will cut off Eli's strength and cut off the strength of Eli's family. What will that look like? Well, Eli will be witness to distressing events, not the least of which would be the death of both his sons on the same day. And then likely in the more distant future, none of his descendants would reach an old age, meaning that they would become insignificant and obscure. And finally, Eli's house would be permanently disqualified as priests, and they would be replaced by another family. In other words, those who honor the Lord will be honored, and those who despise the Lord will be disgraced. In light of that, how should we respond to God's word this morning? Let me consider two ways that we can apply the text this morning. Consider these with me. First, let us consider the problem of sin and specifically our proclivity to have pet sins, sins that we make allowances for in our own lives. You see, Eli was willing to call out the sin of sexual immorality, but he turned a blind eye to the sins associated with the sacrifices that were of personal direct benefit to him. We call that his pet sin, or as Puritan Thomas Watson calls it in his classic work called A Godly Man's Picture, it was his darling sin. Watson and Uh, a godly man's picture notes that there are four types of sins that faithful people will be vigilant in killing and mortifying, that they won't accept, they won't allow themselves to participate in. He says, one is a secret sin. A faithful person of God rejects secret sins. A faithful person of God rejects gainful sin, that is, sins which profit the person sinning. A faithful person of God rejects sin that the world counts as insignificant. But finally, a faithful person rejects pet sins or darling sins. Now, I think most of us know by experience what a pet sin is. I believe that even as I mentioned that, many of you were convicted by the Holy Spirit and you know what your beloved besetting sin is. But if you're not sure, consider how Thomas Watson identifies a pet sin or a darling sin. To the question, how shall we know what our beloved sin is? Watson replies with six answers. One, the sin which a man does not love to have reproved is the darling sin. Two, the sin on which the thoughts most run is the darling sin. Three, the sin which has most power over us, which most easily takes us captive, is the one beloved by the soul. Four, the sin which men use arguments to defend, that sin is the beloved sin. Five, the sin which most troubles us in times of suffering and distress, that is the darling sin. And six, 
The sin which a man finds most difficulty in giving up, that is the sin that he loves. Brothers and sisters, what sin of yours do those best describe? What sin do you hate hearing it rebuked and reproved of? What sin does your mind think about much? Which sin has power over you? Which sin leads you captive? That's the sin that your soul loves. What sin do you create arguments to defend? That's the beloved sin. Which sin comes at you hard in times of suffering and distress? What sin do you find most difficult to give up? Watson then goes on to give a strong warning against pet sins. He says, one sin lived in gives Satan as much advantage against you as many sins. One sin lived in proves that the heart is not sound. One sin lived in will make way for more sins. One sin lived in is as much a breach of God's law as many sins. One sin lived in prevents Christ from entering. One sin lived in will spoil your good duties. One sin lived in will take away your peace. One sin lived in will damn as well as many sins. One sin harbored in the soul will leave us unfit for suffering. You see, brothers and sisters, a godly man or woman, a faithful man or woman, will not indulge sin and certainly will not tolerate darling sins. So as the Spirit of God has convicted you this morning, whatever your pet sin is, whatever your darling sin is, I encourage you to respond faithfully. And faithful response in regards to these things is to repent. And then to receive the forgiveness that Christ won for us at Calvary. Let's let the lesson of Eli be a warning to us all this morning that one sin lived in is one too many. Finally this morning, I'll finish by considering the legacy of faithful parents. We see the piety and the faithfulness of Samuel's parents in contrast to that of Eli. And since the author of 1 Samuel clearly wants to emphasize Hannah, we do well to emphasize mothers this morning, not to mention it's Mother's Day and the providence of God. So let me finish this sermon by encouraging the mothers here this morning. Not by telling you how great you are. Know that I think you're great. I think you're awesome. I appreciate so much mothers and what you do. But could I encourage mothers in a different way this morning? Can I encourage you having seen the outcome of Hannah's life to persevere? Can I encourage you mothers to persevere in your love for your children, to persevere in your loving deeds towards them, even the ones that seem insignificant? Can I highlight the fact this morning that it's the steadfast love of a mother worked out in the mundane things of life 
like providing a robe for your child, that this story shows has a cumulative impact on the well-being of the child. Now, the gospel of Jesus informs us, mothers, that laying down one's life for another is the pinnacle, pinnacle of love. And even though a mother's love is not saving in any way, it is nevertheless a foundation for a child to stand and face life. It's a foundation for a child to learn about God. It's a foundation for a child from which they can honor God in their lives. And so I encourage you to persevere in your faithfulness to God, to persevere in your love to your children, and to persevere in loving them in tangible ways as expressions of your love. And pray that God would use you in their lives. In his plan to save them through Jesus Christ and for them to walk in faithfulness before God. God honors faithfulness. He despises unfaithfulness. Therefore, we ought to endeavor to be faithful. Let's pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, I would ask this morning that you would help us particularly in regards to applying this text. In that regards, Father God, I pray for two things. I pray that you, by your Spirit, would convict each one of us of our pet sins, of our darling sins, and that you would give us the strength to repent of those sins and seek and receive the forgiveness we have that Christ won for us on Calvary. And I pray for mothers. Father God, would you, by your spirit, help them to persevere in loving you and to persevere in loving their children and to bless those seemingly mundane deeds that they do in caring for the children. Use those things in the lives of their children that they might walk in faithfulness as well. We ask all of this in Christ's name, amen.